God, you are good, and we come before you this morning um, just in worship, and we love you, and we love to come and praise you, and we look forward to that day when we will be with you forever, enjoying the happiness that you have for all eternity, and we long for that day. And so we pray that it would come quickly, um, but God, between now and then, we ask that you would grow us and mature us, that you would fill our hearts with a greater sense of love for you that we would feel an urgent sense to be on the same mission that you're on, to save people who are lost and far from you. And God, we just acknowledge that this is a crazy world with lots of broken and hurting people. And you are hope and you have hope. And so we pray that our church would be effective in sharing that with people. But we thank you for a body to come and just worship and be together and praise you. And so we pray that you would be glorified this morning, that you would be pleased with our offering of worship. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've been reading this book for um, school uh, on what it means to be an ethical pastor. And one of the things, which is sort of funny, like that they even have to write a book on what it means to be an ethical pastor. But unfortunately, we've all heard those stories. But one of the things that was mentioned in this book that I thought was interesting is that pastors are often guilty of exaggeration and overstatement in their preaching, which I thought never happens, of course. Um, You know, to get their point across, they uh, create this sort of dramatic impression and they sometimes say things that are embellished, to say the least, for effect, right? The book says that In contrast, people should be able to trust their pastors unequivocally, that they shouldn't have to worry about sorting through the overstatements that pastors maybe make in their preaching. And so I was thinking about making this really extreme statement this morning, and I found myself wondering, well, am I going to be unethical in my preaching if I say this? So I decided to do some research ahead of time using the greatest tool of factual information that humanity has ever conceived. And so I went to the interweb. And to just cover my bases and make sure that I wouldn't be accused of exaggerating, I decided to use the interweb to research three of the top events that shaped world history. Because I kind of had a sinking suspicion about what one of them was. And I wanted to see if anybody would agree with me. So I got a lot of different answers. I went to at least a dozen different websites, some of them reputable, some not. Here are the top three from one website that I would call semi-reputable, okay? And I think that these three are fairly representative of things that I encountered, okay? So coming in at number three, the Renaissance, the third most important moment in world history according to the interweb. The Renaissance was a time of cultural rebirth in Europe that spurred uh, the philosophical thinking behind modernity, the modern scientific method. It was truly a a pretty uh, changing moment for the world. And it also gave us Renaissance festivals, which are very cool. So obviously, it was a pretty significant moment in world history. Number two, World War I. My source said that approximately 37 million people died in in World War I, um, which is a lot, but only 2% of the global population. And again, a significant moment in world history? Yes, absolutely, right? But also focused mostly in Europe, maybe not the entire world. Number one, anybody want to take a guess? World War II. 
right? If World War I made the list but World War II didn't, that would be sort of backwards. The death toll in World War II was also significant, somewhere around 60 million or 3% of the world population. But what's more amazing is how World War II shaped the world going forward. Uh, it did actually manage to drag in the majority of the world, so it's fair to call it World War II. And I would say certainly that World War II would make just about any top 10 list of the most significant moments in history. But what I find amazing about this list and most of the other ones that I encountered is that it only goes back about six or 700 years. Forgets a whole lot of stuff in history before that. There were a few sites that were willing to go back further. They suggested that uh, some of the most important moments in human history were things like written language and the advent of agriculture. Pretty significant, right? Can you imagine what the world would be like had we had World War II, but we didn't have food crops and books. I encountered some other suggestions. Egyptian mathematics, the discovery of fire, which led to the invention of hamburgers, <laughs> Greek philosophy. I thought that one was pretty important. Greek philosophy, the founding of Rome. Finally, I found a few that said the birth of Islam and Christianity, the plague in Europe, and my personal favorite, the invention of the interweb which I thought was also funny because, of course, the interweb thinks that the most important thing in the world is the interweb. Why wouldn't it? It's a little narcissistic, but of course. So what my little research project revealed to me is that nobody on any of these websites that I found myself clicking through agreed with me in what I would call one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. So that lead me, uh, led me to believe that there are one of two possibilities as a, uh, a result of my research, okay? One, either I'm wrong, and as a pastor, I'm exaggerating my perspective to make a point, which may be unethical, or this event was so discreet that most people have just missed it entirely. Could it be that one of the most significant moments in all of human history happened with so little fanfare, so little attention, that people throughout all of history have failed to see its significance and importance. So how about this? I'll take some time. I'll present my case for why I think that this event should be at least in the top three. And then you evaluate what I have to say and you decide for yourself. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you're a visitor here this morning, um, after the service we would love to give you a Bible free of charge. That would be our gift to you. Um, so come, come see me or stop by the bookstore after the service and let us do that for you. Luke chapter 2, and uh, as we read this, I'm sure it'll be very familiar to most of you, okay? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the inn. Everyone knows this story, right? We hear it every December. Some of you are like, wait, this isn't right. I haven't heard jingle bells in the last like week, right? We hear it every December. It comes with the, the nativity scenes and the Christmas stars and the pumpkin spice lattes and everyone's favorite phrase, happy holidays. That's when it comes around. 
And even though it's not Christmas, we're working our way through Luke. So we're going to talk about this story this morning. And the shepherds and the angels will come, come later down the road. But this story opens up with an introduction to the greatest Caesar that Rome ever had. And there I go as a pastor exaggerating again. Embellishing the story to make it more exciting by calling Caesar Augustus the most amazing emperor Rome ever had. But I'm not exaggerating or embellishing. Okay, there's a reason why this story opens with Caesar Augustus. It's not just to give us the historical context, which is important. If you were here a few weeks ago, you remember Luke is a historian. So he is very much interested in giving his readers the historical background, the historical context to what's going on. So we know the factual truth of the story that he is telling. But that's not the only reason that Caesar Augustus is mentioned here, why Luke opens with his name. Luke is telling the story of Jesus, who is also known as the Son of God. Luke's telling the story of the hero of humanity, Jesus, the God-man who has all power and all authority over creation, even as he's being born this helpless baby boy in a stable in Bethlehem. Well, often in literature, I was an English literature major in college before I dropped out, but I remember this, often in literature, the best way to emphasize the characteristics of the hero of the story is to place them beside a foil, okay? In literature, a foil is a person who contrasts the hero of the story in order to emphasize or enhance the character of that hero, Okay, I think I've got a slide here for you. Take Bert and Ernie, for example, Sesame Street. We all know Bert and Ernie, right? Ernie's the fun-loving guy. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He loves his rubber ducky. He's laid back in nature, and his laid-back nature is further emphasized by the fact that his roommate, Bert, is pretty uptight and high-strung. Look at those eyebrows. That's one serious dude right there. And so when you see Ernie in contrast with Bert, who is overly serious, you notice all the more how chilled out Ernie is. Bert is the foil that emphasizes Ernie, the fun-loving characteristics that he has. Okay, you can take that slide down. So why juxtapose the birth of baby Jesus with the rule of Caesar Augustus? Well, Caesar is our foil in Luke chapter 2. He was the first Roman emperor. He rose to power after a bloody civil war when his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was murdered. Maybe you remember that play from Shakespeare. Caesar, Julius Caesar is murdered, civil war starts, and as a result, Caesar Augustus becomes emperor of Rome. And Caesar Augustus managed to come out on top of that civil war, declaring himself the uncompromising emperor of Rome. And he transformed from that point on the democratic republic that was Rome into a dictatorship, placing himself at the top of that dictatorship and consolidating all of the vast territories that belonged to Rome into one unified empire. But Caesar Augustus didn't stop there. He went on from that point to say that his father, Julius Caesar, was actually a god. Which made Caesar Augustus the son of God. 
Augustus' real name was actually Gaius Octavius. He took the name Caesar after his father to make this connection between the two, and he added to it the title Augustus, which essentially means holy, venerated. So he saw himself as the holy son of God, and he brought about a long reign of peace throughout the empire of Rome. In fact, so significant was his reign of peace that during his time as emperor, Caesar Augustus had the the gates of the temple of war closed in Rome. These were also called the gates of Janus, who was the god of war. And this was a sign to everyone in his empire that because those gates were closed, he, through his power and authority, had brought peace to the world. And when the gates of the temple of war were closed, it was a signal that the empire was at peace. And they remained closed for many years throughout his reign. So beloved was Caesar Augustus by his people that they began to call him savior of the world. And at various points throughout Rome, people actually worshipped him as God incarnate. Caesar Augustus, the God-man. And so the power and prestige and the importance and the significance of Caesar really can't be overstated. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that he was the greatest Caesar that Rome ever had. You can verify that on the interweb. So how disturbing then that in this obscure and remote part of Caesar Augustus's empire, in a stable in the city of Bethlehem, events were unfolding that would eventually destabilize his empire and remove him from this position as God-man. How unsettling that someone even greater than Caesar was being born somewhere within his empire, someone whose birth would ultimately change the course of human history more than any other single person who ever lived. And interestingly enough, Caesar missed it, and so did almost everyone else in Caesar's day, or there probably would have been some kind of party in Bethlehem, And so did the interweb when I was looking. Didn't find this listed on any website. And uh, people missed it back then, and they still miss it today, all the time. Without exaggerating, I would say that the single greatest miracle known to man, and certainly one of the greatest events that ever happened in human history, was neglected in its significance, is still Now, maybe people miss this because it was just another birth. This miracle that took place was just another birth, okay? And every birth is, in some regard, a miracle. And so we no longer are impressed by the miracle of life. I think very much in America we have a case of this. I want you to listen to how improbable and unbelievable it is that anyone is ever born. In an article I found on Huffington Post by Dr. Ali Benazir, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he calculates the mathematical probability of you being born. And it comes out to, you can throw this slide up there, 10 to the 2,640,000th power. That's 10 followed by 2,640,000 zeros. Okay, they got ahead on me. Here's 10 to the 1,000th power, just to show you how impossible it is. So you have one in that chance of being born? No. Here's 10 to the 7,000th power. Okay, if we, had, if we could actually put 10 to the 2,640,000th power on paper, 
It would be a one followed by so many pages, it would fill 3,000 pages of a book with zeros. And that is an incomprehensibly large number. To help put this in perspective, he says, the approximate number of particles in the known universe is 10 to the 80. I got one more slide. Number of particles in the universe, 10 to the 80th power. And yet the probability of you being born is 10 to the 2,640,000th power. He concludes with this illustration, which I think I maybe have this too. So what's the probability of your being born? It's the probability of 2.5 million people, roughly the population of San Diego, getting together to play a game of dice with trillion-sided dice. They each roll one of the dice, and they all come up with exactly the same number, say 550 trillion, 343 billion, 279,001. So you begin to see the ridiculousness. Even secular science acknowledges that every birth is an impossible miracle. Every life is amazingly ordained by God in a way that is inexplicably specific. And in fact, the only way to explain how anyone has ever been born, let alone all of us being born, is that God has declared it should be so. Because the probability, the sheer probability, is nearly impossible. And so I think we should see every human birth as a historic moment. Yet we hear about these kinds of miracles and we see them all the time, which is why we don't even think twice about the fact that every person we see is living testimony to a loving God who loves to give life and be kind. But the birth in Luke chapter 2 is not a miracle for this reason. The birth of this baby in a stable is not this mind-blowing event because the probability of it happening is impossibly small. The birth of Jesus is something far greater still. It's a miracle of miracles. But there I go overstating the facts again, right? Because I'm a pastor and we like to exaggerate for effect. But no, again, I'm not overstating my case here. This birth was the single most important birth in the history of the world. A miracle of miracles, and yet it was almost completely missed. Even Luke sort of just tosses this glance at it. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. And we usually get so caught up in chastising this heartless innkeeper who made them stay in the stable that we totally miss the point, okay? Or we get caught up in the cute, cuddly baby Jesus, the mooing cattle, the wooden manger, missing the most ridiculous part of all, which is not that he was born in a stable, but that he was born at all. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid him in a manger. This has to be the understatement of all understatements. If pastors are guilty of exaggeration, then Luke is guilty of seriously understating the significance of this moment. 1,400 miles away in Rome, Caesar Augustus is being worshipped as Savior God. And here in Bethlehem, the true Savior of the world was entering the world 
Why? Because the time came for Mary to give birth. Before we get to the heart of Luke's understatement, I just want to unpack this one phrase for a moment. Because the time came for Mary to give birth. Does this mean, is Luke saying that because nine months had passed and so now it was time for Mary to give birth? Yes, it does, but it also means so much more than that than just the simple fact that Mary was full term in her pregnancy. What this phrase means is that the precise moment had arrived in the mind of God for him to unfurl the plan that he had always had from the beginning of time. And you need to understand that God does not dwell in time like you and I do, as if he were a man. He does not encounter events in a linear succession like we do. Before time began, God wrote this story. And through prophets and scripture, he anticipated this moment and said a day would come in the fullness of God's time when God would do something incredible. Isaiah 29, 14 says, Behold, God says, Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Habakkuk 1, 5, God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And from of old, God planned this moment in a stable in Bethlehem when Jesus, the holy son of God, would be born into the world. And then, after planning the moment, God waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, not just nine months, but century after century as human history played out before him. And he waited until the very minute that he had appointed for his great plan of grace and mercy to be revealed in the birth of his son, Jesus. My dad calls God the crockpot God because he's happy to just let things simmer and wait and wait. And after all that time and waiting and anticipation, almost nobody recognized one of the most amazing events in human history. Even people that were anticipating it and expecting it, the Jews, the Pharisees, missed it. And so why is this moment in Luke 2 so important? What about it is so significant? Why is this such an over or understatement? Well, this is the moment when God in all of his eternal being and glory somehow squeezed himself into the form of a baby. God who is eternal and spirit, omnipotent in his power, omniscient in his being, omnipresent, all at the same time, everywhere, in all times. God who has always been and is today and forever will be. God who is beautiful beyond description, great beyond measure, holy and unapproachable. This God who is undescribable and who shaped the stars and the galaxies and placed them for our wonder, established all of the created order by the word of his power. This God who is unfathomable in nature and unending in his being. In a miracle of miracles, in this moment in Bethlehem, he added to his eternal nature the mortal nature of man. God became a man and dwelt among us. And the one who spoke this world in existence and has lived 
apart from it, independent from it for all time, chose in this moment to step into the story and subject himself to the same laws of his own created order. And he allowed himself to be born into our world through the miracle of birth. He subjected himself to human experiences that you and I have had, things like being hungry and tired, being sad and being happy. And God added to his infinite being the finite body and finite nature of humanity and eternally fused the two into the God-man Jesus to save mankind. Now we call this the incarnation. And there's no way to explain it to you. It's, it, it's like telling you that I somehow managed to fit the entire ocean into my water bottle. Or like telling you that I crammed the entire universe into this soccer ball. And when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, I want you guys to understand this. Our minds are going to be blown by this incredible mystery because there in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, will be Jesus in the flesh, yet no less God. We will have risen bodies and we will be human and he will have a risen glorified body and he will be human. And yet somehow, for all eternity, he will also be eternal, infinite, glorious God who was and is and ever will be. These two natures fused for all time. And so make no mistake, the same Jesus who was born in this stable in Bethlehem, we will praise him in heaven. Somehow, mysteriously, he will have his human form forever fused with his Trinitarian godness. And to help explain why the birth of this baby is one of the most incredible moments, just so you don't think that I'm guilty of talking extremely without backing it up, let me quote two people smarter than me. Here's the first slide from Wayne Grudem. He says about Jesus, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, while Jesus continued remaining what he is, that is, fully divine, he also became what he previously had not been, that is, fully human as well. Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. It may be easy for us to lose sight of what is actually taught in Scripture. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. C.S. Lewis, who has quite a way with words, just says this, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. And it did happen. In a barn in the sheep town of Bethlehem where nobody was looking, So I think after looking at this event, I think it's fair to say that I have not exaggerated the significance of this moment. The all-knowing interweb just missed it, unfortunately. And so did Caesar, and so do we sometimes. But what's the point, right? Here's the incarnation. God has become a man. That's incredible. But what does that mean for my Sunday afternoon when I leave church? What implications does it have for my week? 
Well, I want to give you just two take-homes, okay? I want to give you something to do and something to know. And so when it comes to the doing part, I actually, I actually really don't want you to do anything but wait. Just wait. And I know this is hard. I know that this is incredibly hard. But some of you, uh, the, the reason it's hard is because some of you really need God to show up in your life and you need him to show up now. You need the circumstances to change. You need the loneliness to go away. You need the next step to be clear. You need direction and provision, and you really need it right now. But this story shows us that, unfortunately, God is not in a hurry. When the time came, Jesus was born, and not a moment before God intended for that moment to come. Remember the crockpot God? who's happy to just set the date and let that thing slowly cook. He's slow and he's patient. We want him to be the microwave God, the 30-second button, and it's done. But that's just not how he does it. So if there's an application for you to do from this passage this morning, I would say it's this. Hurry up and keep waiting. Just keep waiting. God has a plan and he has a time and it will be revealed when he is ready and not before. And so wait for the fullness of his time, as difficult as that is sometimes. And as for the application that you need to know, some of you are fuming right now. You're like, I was hoping for something more. He's told me to just wait. Yeah. As for the application that you need to know, In my experience, one of the things inherent in what it means to be human is this desire to be significant. We have this built-in drive for our lives to mean something, and we want to feel important. At one point, I met with a couple coming to our church, and they told me that they were frustrated and they were disappointed because they just didn't feel like they were important to our church. And they had tried to serve, and they tried to help out, and it just felt like nobody was appreciating them, and they weren't. They just weren't important around here. And I I had to sit across the table from them and and just tell them, look, you, you have it all wrong. You're not important to our church community because of what you do. You're important to our church community because of who you are. And the incarnation, this moment when Jesus was born as the sinless, glorious God man reveals that God thinks that you are significant and important. Not because of what you do, not because of what I do, but because of who he has made us to be. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And we need to know our significance in the eyes of God, I think. Forget the power of positive thinking. Forget the need to be needed. Forget the fact that we're significant because of what we do. Forget this endless rat race to make people like us more. And our miserable efforts to work for God so that he will appreciate us and be happy with us. Forget all of that. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Your life is significant because God has said it is significant. Remember how unlikely and improbable it is that you were ever born in the first place? God ordained it to be so. Your life is so significant in God's eyes that Jesus set aside his heavenly glory to come to earth, to take on human nature so that you could know God and be saved from your sins. 
And if God thinks that you are significant because of who he created you to be, then guess what? You are significant because of who God has created you to be. Not for what you do and for how you contribute, but for who he has made you to be, a child of God, a son or daughter of God. Now, at the risk of being accused of overstating and exaggerating, what the incarnation tells us is that in the eyes of God, you are the most significant person on the planet. Because God became human for your sake. God shed his blood for your sake. You're no more or less significant than any other person in this room, but you are infinitely significant in his eyes because his son bled and died for you. And the proper way to respond to that truth is to simply glorify God and worship him because of who he is and what he has done for us. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the incarnation this truly incredible moment where you humbled yourself, where you chose to step down from your position of glory and grandeur in heaven to become human flesh, to add to your eternal divine nature a human nature. And we thank you that as you lived this life, Jesus, that you did it sinlessly and perfectly And you did it all intending to go to the cross at the end of it so that you could bleed and die that we might be redeemed. And God, we thank you and we praise you for that. You are worthy of glory and honor. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you and to wait. To wait for you to reveal your plan in your time. And God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would help us to know that we're significant not because of what we do, but because you have made us so. And we praise you for that. Amen.